and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. We have a first for the podcast today in that we're recording live from the Joint European Neonatal Societies meeting in Venice. Uh, the topic of today's podcast is uh, neurodevelopmental outcomes of extremely low birth weight infants randomised to different PCO2 targets, the Felby follow-up study, which was the editor's choice uh, for the journal uh, back in July. I have the lead author with me today and I will get him to introduce himself. My name is Ulrich Thome, I'm from Germany, I work in Leipzig at the University Hospital where I am the chief of the neonatal division. Okay, thank you very much and thank you for taking the time out of the conference to, to speak with us. Um, could you just refresh the listeners' memories as to what the original Felby study was and, and what population of infants that you were, um, you were studying and what specific intervention you were studying in these infants? Well, the Felby study was asking the question whether permissive hypercapnia would uh, benefit uh, mechanically ventilated preterm infants. So the study enrolled only infants that received invasive mechanical ventilation which became an issue when recruiting because at the time when we recruited non-invasive ventilation became uh, the method of choice so it made recruitment more difficult on the other hand uh, it led to a negative selection very sick babies were enrolled in the trial who really needed mechanical ventilation, where all the less sick babies uh, went on with uh, non-invasive ventilation they were not eligible for the trial. We aimed for a larger PCO2 difference between the study groups than in previous trials because we had the hypothesis that the small differences between groups that were found in previous trials were only so small because uh, the CO2 difference was also small in these trials. For example, the SAFE trial, which had been done in the United States. As the SAFE trial in the United States had found minor benefits with mild permissive hypercapnia, we found it unethical to run the babies uh, in the control group totally high, uh, normal capnic. So we chose a mild hypercapnia for the control group and a more pronounced hypercapnia for the experimental group with a difference of 15 millimeters of mercury between the groups. And both groups had stepwise increases prescribed to be able to wean these babies. We knew from the beginning of the trial that we will not achieve the high targets in the experimental group in all babies because we expected babies to take over their own respiration, even being on the ventilator and trying to prevent uh, the rise in CO2. But um, this uh, we found acceptable because uh, we just wanted to find out what happens with babies when we prescribe higher targets and if the babies don't achieve them despite uh, adequate weaning, it would be acceptable because we were basically testing the difference between two management strategies uh, more than exactly the difference between exact CO2 uh, values that may be achieved or not. So in the main trial we had the primary outcome of uh, bronchopulmonary or death 
BPD was defined as a moderate or severe brachypulmonary dysplasia according to the consensus uh, definition. So babies uh, who would be classified as being BPD had either oxygen or mechanical support requirement at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. I have uh, previously alluded to the um, uh, difficulties in the recruitment that led to a prolonged recruitment, so we terminated the trial prematurely at, after enrolling of 359 infants. Okay. Because we were already running five years and um, we thought it would take too long. At that time, we found uh, no significant differences in the primary outcome, but there were trends against the hypercapnic arm. So we have to assume that there might be harm associated with the high CO2 targets that were prescribed. And we also found uh, in some secondary outcomes some significant differences. For example, we found uh, increased incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis in the hypercapnic arm. And um, this may sound odd, but uh, on the other hand, there are reports in the literature showing that epithelial functions and epithelial repair may be impaired, at least in cell cultures, under hypercapnic conditions. And if we uh, then think about necrotizing colitis as a, maybe a possible problem also of the epithelial barrier in the bowel, there may be even a physiologic explanation for this finding. Okay. So in general, to summarize, um, we did not find a significant difference in either direction, but a uh, worrisome trend. Mm. And from this and uh, some specific uh, secondary outcome measures, we think that uh, this trial, in conjunction with previous trials, indicates that there is probably a optimal CO2 range and not a dose-response relationship with uh, the answer of more CO2 is better, but there is an optimal range and if you exceed that range, uh, things uh, probably are going to get worse again. And can I just ask, was there a significant difference between CO2 levels between the two groups? So did, was there an actual difference between those two groups? Yes, there was a highly significant difference between the groups in CO2 levels, albeit the difference was not as big as um, okay. prescribed, but uh, we had um, already taken that into account that sure. we won't achieve the difference that was prescribed. It was just a vehicle uh, measure to get the largest possible difference that uh, course, babies would allow. And now that study sets the scene for this uh, current study that published in, in the journal. Um, could you just tell us what you then did with that cohort of babies as they got older? Well, the babies that uh, got older were seen back in the follow-up clinics of the participating centers and received a neurodevental follow-up examination which consisted of the usual Bailey exam uh, in, the, in the second version, Bailey 2, Bailey two yeah, okay. because Bailey 3 was not available when yeah. the study was designed. Yeah. And also we did uh, gross motor function classification scales mm -hmm. and uh, we had parents uh, fill out a questionnaire about uh, their own assessment of their child's development. Okay. 
This was not completed in all enrolled infants. Mm -hmm. Obviously, around 40 infants had died during the trial, okay. so they, we would not see them back. And uh, about the same number of infants uh, was lost to follow up, and uh, we were not able to uh, see them back. The rest of them, 265 remaining infants, were seen in the follow-up clinics, and uh, most infants completed the follow-up exams, some were unable to uh, perform uh, parts of them. We did not get an MDI of all infants, we did not get a PDA because not always the exam worked well and the infants uh, or the children would cooperate. And on the other hand, uh, some parents were not able to fill out the questionnaire because of language barriers. We had not prepared um, uh, versions in all kinds of languages which are spoken in Germany. Also, not all infants were classified according to GMCSF. So, the, but uh, in general, we had uh, 85 percent follow-up rate, and uh, about uh, 80 percent of babies would be classified as being impaired or not. Impairment was defined as either an MDI or a PDI below 70 or being blind or hearing impaired, which uh, was not tested on the scene but taken from the history okay. of, the, of the, if there were hearing or visual impairments. Okay. In, in saying all that, what were the neurodevelopmental findings between the groups and, and the, the neurodevelopmental findings in both groups were very similar, very close to each other. We had uh, MDI and PDI scores which were almost identical in mm -hmm. both groups. And we also did not see any differences in the motor function or in impairment scores. Okay. So the um, neurodevelopmental outcome was pretty much unaffected by the randomized uh, treatment groups. So the babies were developing in a very similar manner. Okay. We also had a similar growth uh, in both groups. So we basically there were no differences whatsoever between the groups. What we still found were even in the group that we were seeing back for the follow-up exams, there was still the NEC different, or I would have to say, the history of NEC was, uh, in the, was significantly different between the two groups. So I think from uh, that point of view I would conclude that uh, neurodevelopment is robust against carbon dioxide increases. And maybe I would, uh, if I may speculate, mm, I would do. speculate that nerve cells probably are less susceptible for uh, hypercapnia than epithelial cells. Okay, that's quite a speculation. Um, mm -hmm. So where, where does this study then leave us? Permissive hypercapnia has been a, a central tenant of neonatology mm -hmm. for quite some time. Your study shows that it's probably in the main safe but perhaps not effective, and where does that leave further research and then clinical practice? Um, in terms of further research, it is always nice to have a bigger study mm -hmm. with uh, three times the patient number, but I'm not sure if uh, I would make that recommendation mm -hmm. because it would uh, mean 
putting another hundreds of infants through randomization mm -hmm. and uh, asking a question which uh, is uh, very unlikely at this stage in my view okay. to yield any um, revolutionary new findings. Mm -hmm. I think we have um, more important issues we need to study in our infants and okay, I yeah. would actually recommend to plan studies answering that questions. Okay. In terms of hypercapnia, I think we can, if you look at all the studies we have, we can pretty much um, give a recommendation which uh, carbon dioxide levels we should aim for. You can draw this from the SAFE trial from the United States yeah. and also from the Felby trial. If you look which group had been the better one, in the SAFE trial it was a hypercapnic group mm -hmm. with a carbon dioxide target of uh, greater than 52, mm -hmm. with no upper limit, but was greater than 52 and actually achieved was an average of 52 in that group. And that okay. group was slightly better than the control group okay. yeah. and there had been significant differences in uh, subgroups like uh, the infants um, below uh, 750 grams and also there was a significant difference in the number of infants remaining on the ventilator at 36 weeks postmenstrual age that was a very large difference between the two groups so in that trial the hypercapnia arm was better if we now look at the felby trial um, as we know it was not significant but if you look at the numbers the control group was much better, which had uh, CO2 targets in the first uh, three days of 40 to 50, and then 45 to 55, and then 50 to 60. Yeah. And this was group uh, fared better than the experimental group with the higher right. targets. Yeah. So I think that matches very well. The con CO2 targets of the control group of the Felby with the hypercapnia group of safe trial okay, yeah. they are about the same range and yeah, these okay, are the yeah. better infants of mm -hmm. both trials so from that i think we can conclude that it is uh, probably best to keep an infant on mechanical ventilation above 40 but below 60. even having said that i have to point out another time that uh, most differences were trends and not significant so yeah. there's still some uncertainty mm -hmm. but um, on the other hand I think the conclusion is justified because uh, it uh, in several trials it mm -hmm. points at the same at carbon the same dioxide range ranges yeah yeah I think that's a good place to, to leave our conversation mm -hmm. Professor Tomei thank you very mm -hmm. much and uh, as always people can comment on the on the mm -hmm. podcast via Twitter mm -hmm. and via the, the usual uh, communication channels with the journal. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.